So hello, Daniel. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I've been watching your content uh, for a good while, and it's it's as close as I've found of someone having the precise interests as I have. Um, so I'm very excited for the conversation. Um, so you've studied uh, philosophy and cognitive science uh, in Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just finished actually uh, my undergrad. So that's the combo. Um, I specialized in especially religious belief, religious experience. Um, I like psychedelics and looking into the research on that stuff. So uh, that kind of grounds my, um, all the papers I've written basically have been like, well, here's what psychedelics have to say about this topic. Um, so right. It's a core area of interest for me. Uh, and also I know that you're also involved in the psychedelic community, right? And like you made a, a conference. Yeah, yeah, I've been pretty involved um, as an organizer and activist. Um, I usually sort of brand myself as an uh, organizer, educator, and artist. Um, so I got involved with the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy a number of years ago, and through them, um, I've done a lot of advocacy work, fundraising work, um, and educational work, especially in regards to uh, psychedelic compounds. Um, and the conference you mentioned, um, I don't know if you have any listeners in Canada, but um, I would recommend anybody in the area look up the Mapping the Mind conference. I started that about five years ago, and it's taken off. It has um, some of the leading researchers in psychedelic studies coming to speak. Last year, we had Mendel Kalin, whose work I'm really excited about. He talks a lot about music, the effects of music on the brain, uh, especially as that relates to the profound transformations that psychedelics could offer. I went to the uh, Beyond Psychedelics conference in Prague, so uh, people in, in your area might have a bit easier access with that one. Um, I, I heard you mention the uh, Breaking Convention. Did you actually attend? No, I haven't had the opportunity to go there yet, but soon, hopefully. Oh, okay, because, I, because I've seen you mentioned it, and, and I attended uh, the last two. So for a second, I was, I was very, I don't know, weirded out and excited that you were actually there, and I had no idea. But, mm. but yeah. No, I wish, I wish. And how, how was the one you went in Prague? That was also on my radar, but then I decided not to go. It was um, very illuminating. I met some people who I, I formed very deep, long-lasting connections with, which I think is um, a good sign. Uh, there's a lot of similar people that you, you see at these conferences, which is um, really nice. There's a, like a bit of a regular community. So um, some of the speakers I was really interested in was um, Kalindi E. I, I love hearing that guy talk. Uh, I think he just passed away recently, unfortunately. But... Um, his his take is always, you know, we're not doing enough mushrooms. We need to be taking bigger doses and see what happens. You know, have you met the genies at the quantum level of reality? I don't know, man. You should probably do more mushrooms then. Um, so yeah, he's an interesting take. There was a really good blend of people. Um, there's also sort of like a festival circus aspect that a lot of these conferences have, which I love. So uh, there was a lot of performance art, a lot of music, that sort of thing. And um, the transformative potential of performance art is what I'm especially getting really excited about these days. Something I kind of—I'm uh, speaking from my experience at Breaking Convention—and it's—and it's not quite clear how that generalizes to other conferences. But I real—I really like the experience and, and the conference. But I—I have—I'm not—I'm not sure if we're making a mistake of in these types of conferences of mixing the science with the more mystical and artistic aspect of it, because I respect. Like on one hand, I respect the non-scientific aspect, but with the current cultural climates that we have, 
uh, I feel that's the science of it, um, especially more the cognitive science, neuroscience, and also psychiatry. I think it's a, a good bridge to, to get the, the cultural in general to get on board with psychedelics. And then we explore the more mystical aspect of it later because I always feel kind of uncomfortable in, in breaking convention because I see, like I go to one uh, lecture, which is like, I don't know, the, the neuroscience of LSD with X dose or whatever. And then all the science laid out. And then the next conference is about, I don't know, voodoo magic or something like that. And I'm like, like, I'm not saying there's nothing of value there, but like mixing those things seem wrong because I'm fully committed to psychedelics, but someone that's might just like trying to get like the, the, their, their feet wet into, into the topic. They might see this crazy stuff and they're like, these guys are just nuts and this is a whole mistake. So mm-hmm. what, what do you think about this, this emergence? So I think that the mixing is great. Um, there is one thing that I think is a problem, which I will, I will mention in a moment, but you know, I, I do relate a little bit to the, you could say lack of academic standards involved in some of these larger conferences. Breaking convention is huge as is beyond psychedelics. It was like, three days, there were hundreds of speakers. And it's really hard to, I think, effectively vet everybody when you have that many people. At Beyond Psychedelics, I was giving a lecture on like the neuroscience of visionary experiences based on what I learned up to that point. And then, you know, I sat down feeling good for my talk. And the woman after me just like went off the rails talking about how she was going to take objective images of the shamanic dimensions by putting people in neuroimaging devices because if you neuroimage people's brains while they're like looking at um, phenomena in the spirit world, then the brain information is literally showing you the spirit information. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's not how that works at all. <laughs> and to me, that just showed, I, I realized in that moment, I was like, oh, you know, the intellectual standards for these kinds of conferences probably isn't the best. Now, is that a problem? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you think the purpose of the conference is. So, on one hand, all of the really heavy science people like David Nichols, um, David Nutt, Robert, Robin Carhart Harris, these people are speaking at uh, a number of conferences. There's a lot of other exclusively science conferences that psychedelic scientists are going to, so they're doing their mission there. Mm-hmm. The psychedelic exclusive conferences are basically to, um, they foster connection and community. Um, so the inclusion of art and all of these other methods and thinkers, uh, it's with the end of uh, creating a cohesive community and also raising money, right? Uh, these conferences cost a lot of money very often. Uh, you know, it's like several hundred dollars for a weekend. And, you know, that a lot of that money is going towards psychedelic therapy. Like the Mapping the Mind conference that I started, um, it's relatively cheap compared to uh, other conferences of this variety, but we still managed to donate the vast majority of the money uh, to psychedelic therapy. Uh, so it's a good method for accumulating resources to make the research happen as well. So I don't see the uh, lax intellectual standards necessarily being the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an area where I think uh, we have room for improvement when it comes to these uh, psychedelic-only conferences or psychedelic-only events. Because I don't think that if we integrate psychedelics effectively into our culture, we're going to be fixating on them in such a way. I don't think that it's really uh, appropriate in the long run to emphasize psychedelics as a thing in itself. Psychedelics should be part of, say, a spiritual life, of a healed life. 
Um, so we should bring them into a broader frame of reference, right? They should be a natural part of neuroscience, of psychology, of art, as opposed to being this domain isolated on their own. Um, so that's, that's an area where I think uh, these conferences might um, have some area for improvement, but I think that's more of a, a cultural attitude. I get your point, but at the same time, I actually view it a bit of the opposite because uh, I'm guessing what you were alluding to is more like uh, what you have called like the consciousness revolution. Uh, so you see more like the psychedelics as a tool in order to uh, bring that about and, and so that the culture to change. But the problem that I see with that is that I think, I think it's very hard to change the cultural without psychedelics because because of the history that have led us to this point, uh, especially uh, the secularization and the enlightenment and modernism, like we're in, we, our, our conception of reality is just so divorced from anything that we can call sacred that I think psychedelics is more than just a tiny piece that will fit the, co the consciousness revolution. I think it's actually the key because, because it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only tool that makes the hidden part of reality manifest itself in a brute force, no matter what your cultural beliefs are. So like you don't have an option. And, and if you try to kind of take psychedelics away and just like abstractly talk about these things, I think, I think it just won't stick in the culture because I think we're just too far into the rabbit hole of materialism. I do think you're right about a lot there. I definitely agree that psychedelics are the front on which this consciousness revolution is most obviously going to play out. And I want to just take a second to define that. So the consciousness revolution is a cultural change that we're in um, from uh, what anthropologists call a monophasic culture to a polyphasic culture. And a monophasic culture only values the information and output of a single waking state of consciousness, um, or a single state that state being the waking state of consciousness. Um, now, the polyphasic culture uh, values many other ones, dreams, trance, meditative states, um, deep mystical experiences. In a polyphasic culture, there are methods for producing these states and for interacting with the content that they produce, which also can be meaningfully brought back into the community because there is some sort of reality or value attributed to these altered states. Now, with the scientific revolution, this um, secularism, enlightenment stuff you, you talk about, um, that really ingrains a monophasic mindset into so-called Western culture. But things like psychedelics, meditation, etc., uh, are being taken up broadly in the culture here and now. So I think that we can say that we are quickly shifting from a monophasic to a polyphasic culture. So yeah, psychedelics definitely are going to be a huge part in that, because like you say, it's really hard to ignore what these substances have to show you. It's mm -hmm. a radically different experience with deep meaning, deep significance. And I think that right now, so this is the point that I was making, is not necessarily that um, we shouldn't have these kinds of conferences um, or that we shouldn't have local psychedelic societies. I think that we should. I think all those things are great. But my mind has a tendency to sort of jump at least five years in the future, which is sometimes maladaptive because I have like so many ideas and I'm always like, I need to like plan new things or like create new things, write new things. Um, so when I'm thinking about the proper place for these kinds of events in our culture, um, I'm thinking like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. 
So if it is the case that psychedelics becomes its own little subculture with its own events branded for and about psychedelics because of psychedelics, and, and then we just do that for like 100 years, that's a little bit obsessive. <laughs> and I think that would show that we haven't, at that 100-year mark, integrated these things into our culture appropriately. Um, so what I anticipate seeing, um, and what I think we should move towards, is a world where um, we perhaps are a little bit more excited about God and about divine realities in which psychedelics play a role. Um, yeah, so for example, we could have, um, actually, you know, I won't say too much. I feel like I'm, I'm already getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I hope that clarifies it a little bit. I'm thinking like pretty long-term uh, right, right. When, I, when I consider this. Okay, so uh, I do want to get into the more esoteric aspects of some of the topics we're interested in. Uh, but part of what I'm trying to achieve is to kind of bridge the gap between science and religion, art, spirituality, all that type of stuff. And and a lot of my audience, I think, at least uh, assuming that the audience starts growing from a significant part of my friends and my close community, that will be a very scientific, uh, not at all religion-oriented uh, so I want to get into some more mystical topics, but I think it needs a bit of an introduction so that people don't think that you're just completely nuts. So I think yeah, it... <laughs> for sure. I mean, honestly, I love taking the approach of just like saying the extreme thing so that the impression is that I'm nuts and then showing people that they actually agreed with me the whole time. So, uh-huh. well, I think that's good, but I'm always afraid that people won't stick around for the, for the explanation. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you'd be surprised though. I think though. I hope so. Okay, so I think a good a good uh, introduction for the topic is maybe just touching a bit on the cognitive science of insight. Um, and I think that I think if you explain that a little bit, that will that will provide some good grounding for some topics that we'll cover later. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's a good intuition. Insight's a good place to start. So, insight is a moment that almost everybody is familiar with, right? Aha. I now see a solution that I didn't see before. Very simple, part of everyday life. In the moment of insight, you're having your experience reframed. There is an understanding that you have now that you didn't have before. Um, Trying to think of if I should make that more clear. So let's say, you know, you've been in this relationship for a really long time and you've been noticing some signs, you know, your girlfriend's not texting you quite so quickly and she's been hanging out with this guy this whole time, but you're like, oh, you know, this is probably fine. She's known this person for a while. But then all of a sudden, one day, you see something that just makes it click. Oh, actually, this whole time, she's been in two relationships, and I thought she was only in one with me. So now you come to see things in a new light, right? So there's your reframing moment. Um, so that's a, that's a really cool ability that people have. Um, human beings are, are really adept at this insight skill, which makes us really great problem solvers. Um, because we can look at an environment, and we can frame it in a number of different ways to see how we can interact with it. Um, if you look at raccoons, for example, they're not really good at doing that. Raccoons will try the same problem solution path um, until they fail. In order to attempt a new way of solving a problem, uh, you have to be able to insightfully reframe um, the possibilities that are present to you. So that's sort of the basic psychological explanation. Um, There are some cool neurological things that are going on in insight as well, which are also very important for mystical type experiences. 
So insight, it exists along this continuum. It's like this basic function involved in reframing our scenarios that then gets redeployed um, in, for example, the flow state. So when you're really in the zone, um, musicians experience this a lot. Um, as somebody who's involved in fitness, you've probably um, seen this, coach people on it, et cetera. Uh, but flow is a state of optimal performance where you are performing just at the edge of your ability. Um, so the things that induce flow have to be sort of difficult, um, such that it requires you to be constantly in this highly attentive mode um, where you can insightfully reframe which actions you need to perform in order to continue to successfully carry out this action. Uh, so the flow state, it sort of builds on the mechanisms at the heart of insight. But then we also have the mystical experience. And the mystical experience is characterized by feelings of oneness, um, unity either with reality or with some divine being. It's filled with bliss. There's a sense of ineffability. And often the experience that one has, which has these qualities, is fundamentally reorienting it radically initiates a shift in a person's way of understanding themselves, of understanding the world, and of relating those two things together. And those qualities of oneness, of bliss, of ineffability, those things actually all carry out in the other experiences I mentioned as well. When you get into flow, there's a sense of being at one with whatever task you're doing. The ego voice sort of quiets in the back and you are just deeply, richly present. And with the insight moment, it's usually experienced as very pleasurable. Uh, and not only that, but no one really knows how it's happening. There is a sort of ineffable quality to simple insights as well. It's just, oh, suddenly there is a new idea that has appeared from who knows where. Um, so you can see that from the phenomenology of these experiences, there are similarities. And the reason that these phenomenological similarities are there is because there are very similar neural mechanisms at play. Now these functions are all lateralized strongly to the right side of your brain. Uh, I think there's a network there called the um, ventral attention network, which is very important in initiating these kinds of experiences. There are two dominant attention networks, the dorsal and the ventral. The dorsal network runs um, like a dorsal fin across the top of your head here. And that helps to really lock in and hone in on a single thing, which really makes sense um, as it's distributed across the brain because um, it connects your um, frontal lobes to these areas closer to your occipital lobes where the stuff in your vision is being processed. Um, so it's kind of like your frontal lobes reach across to the back of your brain to latch on to some sort of visual object. Now the, uh, the ventral attention network on the, on the side, it, it's really strongly lateralized on the right side of your brain. Um, that thing sort of acts like a circuit breaker. It interrupts the focus of attention that the dorsal network is engaging, um, allowing you to incorporate um, unnoticed or novel stimulus into your present moment of awareness. And there's also a bunch of key areas in the temporal lobe located um, very close to that ventral attention network, which are strongly active in mystical experiences um, and in the flow state. So. There you go. I think that's a, that's a good intro. We have this deep continuity between these experiences right. and the everyday insight um, can quickly become the mystical insight uh, mm -hmm. if it's only of sufficient magnitude. Awesome. Uh, I was actually wanted to, to kind of have that as a starting place to then explore the, 
the the scaling up of experiences culminating in the mystical experience but you're you actually <laughs> managed to to get that from the from the get-go so that's perfect um and i think i think insight is such a is such a good way to approach it because it's it influenced like it, it explores the the aspects of consciousness that it relies on categorization and and framing and i think that's really important to people to like step out of like the materialist typical new age thinking because uh, a lot of people in that camp they they from my experiences they're they're not very uh, well read in very rudimentary psychology and they still have this paradigm where it's like as if the world is just laid there and you just have a, an intake of the world through perception and very basic cognition mm-hmm. and and that's just that's just so wrong. And I think if you don't get that's right, if you don't understand why that's wrong, then a lot of, a lot of what religion is trying to accomplish just, just goes over your head. Um, because, because a lot of it is to kind of change, uh, change your reality in a more functional manner. But if you think that reality is a given and all you do is just perceive it and well, that, that doesn't make any sense, obviously. So, yeah, it sounds like this problem is um, coming down to a, a philosophical viewpoint known as naive realism, which I always found very funny because, um, you know, when we're studying that in a philosophy class, we're looking at people who have, like, pretty good reasons to believe that our experience is showing us a very real way in which the world is beyond our perceptions. But I've never applied that to, like, this sort of um, self-educated new age population. Um, I think that's very interesting and actually probably a better application for the naive part of naive realism, because at least the naive realists who are doing philosophy um, do take this very analytical approach. They're constructing good reasons to at least say first that my experiences can be reliable reports of what's happening. But I think that when we also mix like psychedelics and other sorts of altered state uh, induction into our everyday practice, uh, and we don't have any kind of philosophical training, um, there's probably this interesting tendency, which I think you're getting at, to just um, take as legitimate and authentic the contents of a variety of states of consciousness uh, without really thinking about the relationship between that content and reality. So somebody without this sort of more reflective or educated viewpoint on what perception is and what it's doing for us might experience a DMT entity and say, wow, literally a star being has come to me and I am a prophet, <laughs> which can get into all sorts of weird stuff. So right. is that kind of the problem that you were, you were talking about, just taking too seriously these weird things? Uh, that actually applies it, but the way I was thinking was actually different. I was thinking uh, actually from the from the perspective of the average Joe with no philosophical training, with no psychological training that just seems to perceive reality. And and by reality, I mean like everyday life reality, not putting any mystical states or psychedelics into it. Uh, And they don't, they don't understand the, the nuance that goes into how your brain actually understands uh, what's going on and how malleable it is and how, top bottom it is because people perceive it the way around which has some elements but a lot of it is is top down that's what i mostly i was getting at but it it definitely applies to what you said as well once those mystical experiences uh, occur 
because like we discussed already, like the, there are brute facts of that aspect of reality and then people accept it. So it's like the, the mystical vision gets integrated into their worldview, but then because they still have the, the substrate belief of that uh, naivety that, that you mentioned, then it leads to all kinds of problems that you just, that you just described. Um, right. Yeah. And it seems that there's like maybe actually two camps here. So there is like one person who has this sort of naive, naive realist viewpoint, um, engages in mystical experiences and maybe takes it um, more literally than is warranted. Um, but then on the other hand, we have a lot of people in this world who um, are just very unconcerned, um, unreflective about the nature of even just me looking at this computer screen. Like, what is that? What exactly is reality? Mm-hmm. Those are some interesting things. And so... On the New Age hand here, we have um, this problem of populating the cosmos with many more entities than genuinely exist. But on the other hand, of the person who doesn't enter these states and who just simply doesn't consider their experience, there are many fewer entities than genuinely exist in that person's experience. So I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty good dialectic to talk about. And when it comes to addressing our scientific materialist sort of view, which is quite honestly in a state of decline. Um, Many of the people in the upper echelons of academia uh, don't actually hold to an overtly materialist viewpoint. And I think that a lot of the people that do are going to die within 20 and 30 years. (laughs) And the new vanguard of young, um, strange idealists will be taking over very soon. I was just talking to somebody yesterday who described himself as a physicalist idealist, which is not something that I'd heard before. Um, I don't know if that's I don't know if I quite agree with that framing of that um, metaphysical standpoint, but um, he's got like computational neuroscience degrees and all of this. He was talking about how we can understand everything through mathematics at some point. Uh, But nonetheless, he thinks that what the physical world is is an expression of consciousness. Um, So I think that's very interesting. Um, I definitely agree with that framing of the view. And so that view also requires us to sort of like rethink what is in reality, right? There's a middle point between these characters that we have, this naive new age character and this naive everyday character. Um, So yeah, there's there's, there's a lot to be said about, well, what aspects of these mystical experiences are real? Um, So I think that could be an interesting thing to touch on next, if if that's where you want to go. Yeah, I'll get there uh, at some points. I would just like to maybe touch a bit on how does the continuum of insights to actually i would like to ask you something first uh the way you're the way that you're conceptualizing that spectrum in your book uh which by the way i want to explore the topic of your book uh, a bit bit of the end uh, if you if you have time and if i don't forget but in your book you have the uh, cognitive continuum of like uh, starting in insight and then culminating in mystical experiences. Uh, I was wondering if you make a distinction between uh, the mystical experience and the transformation experience, or if you, if you just bundle them together. Mm-hmm. So just to provide a bit of context first, um, yeah, I'm writing a book with Dr. John Verbeke, and uh, the title is The Cognitive Continuum, at least that's what it is right now. And that's actually, so I realized there's actually two ways that you could frame the cognitive continuum. One of them is in this way, where we have this continuum of functions insight, flow, mystical experience, based on um, a reuse of a fundamental uh, mechanism in your brain, which is, I think, a learning mechanism at its heart. But there's also, you can also talk about it in terms of um, 
a sort of embodied ecological cognitive science viewpoint where the individual cognitive agent is sort of continuous with their environment. Um, so through the individual organism, the ability for cognition is negotiated as, as organisms sort of carve out their space of existence within an ecological sphere. Um, so that actually plays a really important role in making sense of the mystical stuff. So we'll probably come back to that later. Now, let's see, what else could I say about this cognitive continuum from insight to the mystical experience that I, that I haven't said already? Yeah, so you were asking about the awakening experience. Now, I still have to do a lot of thinking about exactly how to break up these kinds of experiences. So I'll be clear about that. I'm going to be doing some uh, active sense making right now. Now, there are uh, at least two kinds of mystical experience. I think I'll start there. Um, so we can have an experience of divine union where, you know, complete ego death, you feel at one with everything. But on the other hand, there's also a kind of experience called the interactive relational experience, which is characterized by a lot of content. So you have beings visiting you, you're hearing voices, perhaps you're seeing vast geometric cathedrals in your imagination, interacting with them. Um, and the point of those is that you can sort of engage with your unconscious as though it's some sort of puzzle waiting for insights to happen, um, which is why it gets the name interactive relational. Um, you can talk to Jesus, you can uh, talk to a dead relative, something like that. It allows you to engage in a different information processing relationship with your own mind than the experience of divine union does. Now, the experience that is most often associated um, in the public imagination with what we might call an awakening experience, which is an experience wherein one wakes up to a new way of seeing reality. It's an insight so grand that it calls that person to radically change their entire life. So we could look at the Buddha, for example, who grows up in his palace. He is kept guarded from all of the unfortunate things in the outside world. But on his first visit to the outside world, he's confronted with death, sickness, suffering. And in light of these experiences, he has to reconsider his own position in society. And he has to make a choice. Well, do I continue being a prince? Do I continue hiding behind these walls? Um, that doesn't seem very satisfactory given these new things that he's seen about what reality is. So he awakens to a new way of being. He leaves the castle. He goes about this process of transforming himself to conform to the reality that has been awoken within him by these insights that he's gathered. So that experience, it's actually very minimal. That experience doesn't really seem mystical in the traditional sense, right? We often associate mystical awakenings with uh, a deep and profound vision of unity, of love, of God. So that unitive mystical experience is very central to many people's awakening experiences. Something, I, I know these stats from the United States, it's like something around 20%, I think a little bit more than 20% of people um, end up having this kind of experience. And often it's spontaneous. Uh, there's no drugs, there's no preparation, it's just bam, you know, lightning hits from heaven. Um, but awakening, um, I, I want to say that it's a, it's a little bit different than that experience. So, so I think we have on one hand these two categories of mystical experience, and then we also have a third related one, which is the awakening experience. Now we can look at um, St. Paul in Christianity as an example for 
an awakening experience of a more mystical quality. He, on the road to Damascus, is set upon by a vision of Christ. A white light blinds him and he hears the voice of God, which instructs him to change his life in some way. So that's an awakening experience that's very minimal or very maximal, uh, very mystical. But compared to the experience of the Buddha, it seems of different magnitude. Now, the Buddha later goes on to have other sorts of more divine types of experiences. But there seems to be something about awakening, which doesn't quite require the grand mystical quality. And there's a researcher named Jeffrey Martin, and his research also seems to bear this out. Uh, He's also very interested in the question of enlightenment. Uh, He's developed a number of online courses teaching people how to do meditation. Um, And he calls people who are, quote, enlightened uh, finders. They find a state of fundamental well-being. And what I found interesting about his work is that he does mention that uh, many people just don't really know when or where this shift towards fundamental well-being occurs. They just know that all of a sudden their life seems to be different and they seem to be happier. Um, So I think that 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 category of person within Dr. Martin's research um, provides some evidence for this idea that uh, there is something about awakening which doesn't quite require the intricate phenomenology of mystical experiences. That's very interesting because I was aware that um, there could be awakening experiences without necessarily being mystical, but I had... I had in mind that they were very connected and sequen- sequential, probably messed that up, but anyway, uh, so that you have the mystical experience and then the trans, uh, the awakening experience. Uh, but you're yeah. saying that's... I mean, usually, usually that's more common. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so not like just, just, to, but... Just, to, just to clarify it on my, uh, on my mind, what, what do you call often, for example? Like most cases, like eight out of 10 or like sometimes like two out of 10? You know, I, I feel I don't want to really provide a number to that question because I'll tell you another thing that can happen as well. So having a divine experience of union with reality, that can definitely, definitely put you in a position where you have to rethink your metaphysics, where you have to rethink your way of life. But it's also possible to dive into those states from a purely hedonistic standpoint and to be left fundamentally unchanged by them. It's possible to be confronted with a vision of one's own biases, and then to deeply believe that those are uh, true and worth pursuing. There's a guy named Jamie Wheel, and he uses this great metaphor. Um, He says, psychedelics, they're kind of like antibiotics. If you don't take enough and kill all of your ego, then the remaining 5% can come back with a vengeance stronger than ever. So, In some cases, we could even have these divine mystical experiences put us back to sleep or put us into a deeper sleep um, to delude us further if we don't relate to them appropriately, which is why it's important to really be clear about um, the sort of neurofunctional aspects of these experiences and to also be very clear in our ontology about, well, what exists and how should we appropriately relate to the things that exist in order to produce a productive awakening experience from a mystical experience, um, there needs to be a community context in which that experience can be received and through which the person who has that experience can be awoken in the right kind of way. Because what seems to be an awakening sometimes can really be awakening to another, an, awakening to another dream. 
So yeah, it's really complicated. So I'm really hesitant to say like X out of 10 times this experience is going to guarantee a kind of awakening. It's, right, right. There's a lot going on. Um, so maybe something helpful to get into is how you, how you would define wisdom and enlightenment and how does this fit into this, into this picture of, of the cognitive continuum? Because I think wisdom, because wisdom has been such a neglected aspect of our lives that it's, it's rarely talked about, but at the same time, from my experience, when you start talking a little bit about it, people are very open to it right away. For, for one, because it's very meaningful. And at the same time, it's not supernatural. So they don't have like all these defenses that immediately go up because it, it, because it fights their worldview. So I think mm-hmm. wisdom is, is, is key to kind of try to get people on board with it, with this, with this type of stuff. So maybe just touch a bit on how you define enlightenment, wisdom, and how it connects to this, to this picture we've been talking about. Um, yeah, wisdom is important. Uh, there is a cultural perception of wisdom as being a way of living life well. Uh, the wise character, we would say, knows how to give advice, um, and they have a pretty good grip on reality. So defining wisdom in terms of a grip on reality um, is a good place to start if we're trying to really get at the roots of what we want wisdom to be. Now, if we look at literature on wisdom coming um, from the depths of history, we actually find three different kinds of distinctions. So there is philosophical wisdom, which is about forming justified true beliefs, primarily. Uh, Somebody who's a philosophy student usually is very good in this kind of wisdom. There's also practical wisdom, which is um, more in line with this character that I was laying out of being able to give good advice, uh, knowing how to direct people in their lives. But we also have a third kind of wisdom. Um, So the scientific research on wisdom, which really started in the 80s, it's a very new thing to look at from a psychological perspective. Uh, It addresses primarily those two kinds of wisdom. Um, So we have people like Paul Baltz, for example, who really started this research paradigm, looking at wisdom in terms of an expert knowledge system. And by having this expert knowledge system, we can thereby give advice to people really well. And then Igor Grossman, who's um, a little bit more recent, I think he's working at the University of Waterloo. Um, He's kind of closely working with the people at the University of Toronto, also trying to research wisdom. He puts it in terms of um, a state of mind where we can reason about our problems in a particularly effective way. And I really like that way of thinking about it. But these views, they actually miss something which I think is very important to consider, which is um, cosmic or divine wisdom. So that's what we would call it if we're looking historically at people who have talked about this in the past. But there's a very good, um, sensible, scientific way that we can understand cosmic wisdom. Just as a brief explanation of what it is, um, prior to the scientific revolution, it was thought that uh, there was a transcendental reality outside of this universe. Um, That's where God lives. And then God can have his will flow into the world and to pick us up in his benevolent goodwill. And so through individuals in communities, um, certain people can be swept up into God's plan Um, such that you or I, perhaps even having this conversation, if we are acting in light of divine wisdom, um, then there is some way in which our behavior contributes to some grand narrative, whereby through us, the entire reality becomes 
more close to an image of God. So there's this world involving nature to wisdom. It's not only our wisdom that we can be in touch with, but this transcendental wisdom flowing through us and ushering in a changed reality, which is more divine, more good, more beautiful. So I think that that is actually a really important missing theoretical link when we're talking about wisdom. Within cognitive science, um, the contemporary wave, which um, there's a lot of theorizing being done within, is called 4E cognitive science. And what that means is that cognition situated within an organism is embodied. It has to emerge within a body that relates to an environment. It's extended, meaning that, for example, if I'm using a tool, if I'm using a hammer, uh, my brain doesn't actually distinguish between the hammer and my arm. If we look at you in a neuroimaging device later, um, there will be a slight change in the part of your brain that maps your arm um, to incorporate this hammer and actually includes it in your awareness of your body. Um, we can do that with the computers, with anything else, for example. Uh, there's a really good book called Natural Born Cyborgs, which was written, um, I think, in the late 90s by Andy Clark. He's a big uh, name in this field of cognitive science, basically arguing that our nervous system is just ready to go to incorporate and include technologies in us. And tool use counts as creating a cyborg of us um, because our nervous system relates to tools by incorporating them into our body map. So that's the extended nature of mind, like tool incorporation, environment incorporation. Um, there's also an embedded nature. So we're all situated in the context. My mind, my life is negotiated actively with my environment on an ongoing fashion. I can't be separated from my environment and make sense. I have to be embedded within a local context, which also constitutes my mind. Embodied and active. Oh yes, and then the last one is inactive. So what that means is that cognition is carved out of reality through action. As a baby, I have a very simple consciousness. It's really hard for me to make sense of the world. I can't really parse apart objects. I don't really know where boundaries are. But as I go through the process of using my hands to explore things, to interact with things, um, as I move my eyes and learn about the relationship between light and the movement of my eyes, these all serve to bring about experience. And you could trace that pattern all the way back to the origins of life, right? Um, consciousness for the paramecium is also negotiated in this way. Um, it has to act in the world. It has to experience meaningful affordances for action, which always include the environment. They're not separate from the environment. So there's a deep relationship between organism and environment. Um, I don't think it's appropriate to look at organisms quite so much as individuals. They're like localized thinking aspects of the environment itself. I think it's more appropriate to talk about ecological systems as agents in which um, sub-agents are situated. Just like for me as an individual, my whole body is an ecology. And there's a relationship between the consciousness of my individual neurons and the consciousness of me here and now. And I think something similar like that is happening um, in the relationship between individual um, organisms and the environment overall, especially for social beings like human beings. Um, we form networks, we are communities. Um, and I think it's appropriate to look at the mind in terms of these uh, collective distributed networks of information processing, as opposed to looking at it in terms of a localized individual. Okay, 
So that gives us a ground by which to make sense of what is happening in this cosmic wisdom portrayal. Practical wisdom can have an aggregate effect of promoting a good community. But if we want to think about, for example, um, broad scale paradigm changes, um, you could say like the civil rights movements or, um, you know, the suffragette movements to get women's rights and all of this. Uh, you could, these are massively distributed processes. There are hundreds of thousands of people involved in them. And all of these people are being swept up in some process, which is more than the individual agents carrying out that process. Um, so I think we can maybe, we can do away with the thought that perhaps there's some individual transcendental entity acting out um, his creative will through us. But I think that we can still make use of the insights from ancient philosophers that there is a way in which systems, including the system of our world itself, can be directly implicated in producing wise, meaningful, effective, and compassionate worlds for human beings across as great a period of time as possible. Um, so I'll stop there. I know that's a lot of content. So ask me if you need to clear any, clarify anything. Right. No, I think that was pretty good. Um, and maybe some, something, something good to get into is that, so you mentioned these um, like embodied cognition and you gave the example of the baby. And maybe that's a good place to start because when you're a baby, for example, and when the baby is, is exploring in, the, in a very early consciousness, it's discovering its affordances in, in the environment based on what it can do. And then it's, it's discovering patterns very basic patterns in terms of, of, of causality, for example. So like if I, if I mm -hmm. move this, I can achieve this and something like that. But the problem is the baby is concerned about those very specific affordances because one, its life is very simple and also because its cognition is, is very limited as well. But as cognition grows uh, and as he interacts with a more complex reality, the patterns that he needs to track are increasingly complex that you can't just simply track a causal relationship of, of the affordances in the environment through physical interaction. And mm -hmm. I think wisdom is a good, um, is, is a good uh, thing to conceptualize within that idea, which is like, it's, it's the adjustment to the environment in a way that's productive for you and for society, but not necessarily mm -hmm. in a way that you can see. And I think that plays a lot into the cosmic uh, aspects that you see. And I think yeah. framing it that way helps to kind of liberate it from a more like supernatural, uh, superstitious even modes. And mm -hmm. maybe something good to get into is that uh, how does that cosmic wis wisdom relates to the mystical states because when when there's a mystical experiences there's like your your regular cog cognition that is your normal awareness uh, it's more like rational statements logic based but then you also have this uh, more subconscious thing which is like your your imagination um and on the mystical sides uh the the imagination just gets thrown into your normal state of consciousness now, like the, the, this division just gets blurred. And so maybe a good thing to get into is like, how does that blurredness of consciousness in the mystical state allow you to get more in touch with this divine wisdom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great things to jump off on. 
for the the child thing and that's really um, apropos for talking about enlightenment because enlightenment the which is um, sort of the end result of a long process of wisdom cultivation um, is very much similar to the process of growing up so you mentioned that there are certain ways in which the child has to transform its experience in order to um, understand what reality is like in a way that can't just be done by making observations of what's here before me now. So for example, um, the example that my professor really, really likes, uh, Dr. Verbeke, is if you take like a, like a three-year-old and you sit them down in front of candy, you have two lines of candy, both of them have three pieces of candy, but one of the lines you spread out further so that it takes up more space, and then you ask the kid which one it wants, it'll take the one that is spread out further because it's making this um, conflation between uh, the amount of visual space being taken up and the amount of object there. But after a few years, um, the child learns to see through this misperception. So in this direct negotiation between action and environment, um, there are certain ways in which we misperceive reality. We make judgments that are um, actually incorrect. And what is needed is to have this comprehensive reframing of how I make sense of the world, which no longer subjects me to this cognitive bias. So as we go through the process of development, um, our way of sense making is transformed so as to put us in touch with uh, a different way of seeing the world. When we're an adult, we can make very many more decisions than when we are young, right? We don't let children drive, we don't let children vote. Uh, they have to be transformed in some important way so that they are cognitively capable of performing these actions. So enlightenment is, is very similar, right? And when I talk about enlightenment, um, I'm really just referring to the process of becoming an ideal person uh, insofar as spiritual traditions have conceived of what an ideal person is. In Tibetan Buddhism, for example, as you are engaging in meditative practice, as you're engaging in contemplative practice, you also are taken through a set of initiations which mirror the developmental process. So in the first initiation, you are bathed to mimic the bathing of a newborn baby. And then at another initiation, you, are, uh, you have your hair cut as though it's your first um, lock of hair that has to be cut when you're a slightly older child. And you go through all of these stages um, which mimic this process of development. So you're going through basically a second development um, in the enlightenment journey, which again, radically transforms your understanding of reality such that you can see new truths that were previously hidden to your less wise self. So something I wanted to get... Um something i wanted to touch on is uh not uh not only the 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 like the, the progress through enlightenment in the terms of in the sense of of uh acquiring wisdom and problem solving and uh, i think the example you gave about the the kinder the candies i think i think that's perfect when i, when I first heard of that from Ravik, i think that's the, the most perfect example can be made and i think it's very illustrative uh but something i'm i'm more curious about um, and that I would like you to explore a bit because this is also very blurry in my mind is the very aspects yes. of the, the imagination because mm. th that is something that in the mystical state that is very different from normal consciousness is one of the key aspects and that directly influences that cascades uh, of insights and, and potentially uh, cultivation of wisdom and, the, and I, I don't remember exactly how you approached it but I remember 
that you even touched a bit on the on the neuroscience of of this breakdown and and how the brain uses this more imaginative entropic state to achieve uh, solutions that are not easily seen by a more rational logical approach to problems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. excellent okay so I think it's good to just first throw in this term that I mentioned in passing, optimal grip. So all organisms, they're basically trying to get an optimal grip on whatever environment they're situated in. In order for humans to do that, we have this developmental process where we need to, through development, radically transform how we're making sense of reality such that we can learn what an optimal grip on reality is. But again, we are typically subject to a lot of biases. The way that we inform our understanding of reality is not usually as good as it could be. Um, we, get st- we get stuck in what you could call a local minima. So in network theory, when you're trying to train a neural network to, say, identify some visual pattern, um, what will happen is that it will often gravitate on a pattern recognition format, uh, which is like kind of close to accurate, but really is missing the mark in an important way. But there's a, there's a point where, where a network gets sort of stuck in a way of behaving, um, which is what's called a local minima. It's like a minimally effective solution for this pattern identification problem, um, but it's, it's hard to get it to learn anymore because its own activity reinforces its position in the network. And so that happens in the human brain. We form a way of understanding reality and we get stuck in that way of understanding reality. You know, one of the reasons that the therapeutic process is so difficult without a therapist is because how the hell are you going to see from a perspective other than the one that you have, right? Mm -hmm. Your own perspective is precisely the thing that is causing you to suffer. You need to have another perspective to get you outside of your own head in a real way, to get you to incorporate information that you couldn't see so that you can alleviate your biases and alleviate the suffering that is being caused by a maladaptive way that you have learned to relate to the world via a minimal set of experiences. So the imaginative state, um, let's just talk about what imagination is first. So imagination, most people are familiar with in terms of uh, mental imagery. I could ask you to imagine a boat, and you could probably conjure a picture of a boat in your head. So that's your imagination in a nutshell. Now, imagination is much more than that, of course. You can have it in every domain. You can imagine smells. You can imagine words. And in fact, the essence of language is in imagination. And the essence of imagination is in the creative redeployment of perceptual states. When I ask you to imagine a boat, what's happening in your brain is that you are using the same machinery involved in identifying a perception of a boat to generate a subtle likeness of what it would be like for you to recognize a boat. All of your perception is hierarchical. It comes in via your senses. Um, Most of it passes through this organ called the thalamus through which it links up to the cortex wrapped around your brain. And let's talk about vision in particular. Um, It's it's really easy to talk about this structure with, with vision. You have um, a number of areas from uh, what we call V1, um, vision area one, up to V5. And different animals have um, analogs of these. Some have less, some have, I don't know if any have more. That's a good question, actually. Falcons, they can see really well. I wonder if they have more specific visual areas. But um, anyways, so stuff in V1 is 
attuned to very basic properties of the environment. So like line orientation, that really area um, basically gives you a grid array. It picks up on this um, sort of line array in your environment. So corners, edges, that kind of stuff is processed by V1. But then as we go further down the hierarchy, um, we start processing more complex features. Um, so we get uh, movement, then we get color, and then we get the perception of um, living things um, way at the end of our visual hierarchy. Um, now, as you get higher in this hierarchy, the, um, that part sort of wraps around here behind your temples. And so V1 is at the back of your head, V4, V5 are closer here to the sides. And what also is in these areas of your brain is the hippocampus and your memory um, retrieval systems. Um, and memory is also used for what's called perspective thinking. Um, so memory allows you to recall past perceptual impressions uh, to bring them back to mind, to simulate them via your imagination. Uh, and it also allows you to break apart the elements of memory and to create new variations of them. So if we're trying to imagine, for example, what it might be like to take a new pathway through this very familiar forest, I can very easily generate that. I can engage in what's called perspective thinking, to think about how I'm going to interact with something in a way that I haven't before. So that's really powerful for human beings, right? We can refer back to this um, raccoon that I mentioned earlier, who will just keep trying the same thing over and over again. Raccoons don't have as good of an ability for perspective thinking. They can't take a step back and simulate a new way of approaching an environment. They actually have to do it through direct bodily engagement. But human beings, we can suspend our immediate bodily engagement to simulate new variations on things. And so that makes us very adaptive. Now we can do that purposely, which is really cool. Um, and when we do that purposely, um, we're beginning to reach into V4, um, into these higher order visual areas, uh, to basically create a backwards perception. And then if I'm really, really good at imagining things, and I can imagine you really clearly, uh, it'll reach farther and farther back into the earlier areas of my brain. So if I can generate a hallucination of you, it's basically engaging the same sort of neural process involved in actually seeing you. So that's pretty cool. Um, now let's relate that to mystical stuff. So it's not just purposely that you can generate imaginative, creative redeployments of past impressions. You also do this in dreams. Dreams are precisely the unleashing of your imaginative faculties to combine information in strange ways. If I take psychedelic drugs and I begin to have a bunch of um, elaborate visions, then what's happening is I'm basically getting a dream state bleeding into my waking state of consciousness. Now, there's a really great paper by a guy, um, two guys actually, uh, it's Hobson and Friston, I think it's like 2014, the publication. But they mentioned that dreams have a very specific function. Um, rather, they theorize that this might be the case. I think it's a good argument. They say that as we go about our waking life, um, our brains can only interpret reality so well. And so eventually it becomes more uncertain about things. Um, it starts to misinterpret information. Uh, and then eventually things that aren't really there start to show up because my brain is really just doing the best that it can. And it's starting to lose track. It's starting to lose its optimal grip on the stimulus coming in from the world. So I have to sleep. If I don't sleep, I hallucinate. The dreaming process, they speculate, is likely 
clearing up misinterpretations. Basically, it's a process of model optimization. They argue that dreaming allows you to optimize your working model of the world by exploring all possible variations, seeing what's reasonable, seeing what's not. Um, and sometimes they can do this just to communicate things to you that are on your mind, right? Emotions can be powerful, or dreams can be powerful revelations of certain emotional states that you're in, um, of certain uh, actions you need to take, right? You can have an insight facilitated by a dream. And so insights, as we've said before, are a way of creatively reframing your awareness of reality. Now, the Tibetan tradition is really great. Um, they have a really elaborate and clear system of uh, interacting with sort of divine realities. And it's also fairly down to earth uh, relative to some ways that you could think of these things. So in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there is constant mention about engaging in dreams. And lucid dream practice is a core practice um, within some uh, monasteries in Tibetan Buddhism. And so what the Tibetan Buddhists have noticed is that you can actually gain important realizations and skills. You can enhance your skills by making use of the experiential cultivation of the dream state. So in Tibetan practice, um, you might dive into a lucid dream so that you can meditate more. Like this practice, it says, uh, mingles experiential cultivation with actual realization. Um, so you're actually getting meditative experience in your dream, which is equivalent to meditative experience that you would gain in a waking state. There's really not a distinction there um, insofar as your brain is still learning, still developing, still gaining new skills. So you can use it deliberately in that way, but you can also use it creatively, right? So we have this lucid dreaming skill acquisition way that you can redeploy your imagination in an altered state. But if we go back to the LSD thing where I'm having, um, I really like to use the example of um, relating to some being. If I say have a vision of an angel of some kind and that angel is talking with me, well, do I have to think that it's literally an angel there? Not really, because I know that my brain is um, creatively redeploying um, things that it has learned in the past in order to put me into a relationship that is conducive to problem solving. I can simulate the therapeutic relationship with an angel if I'm hallucinating an angel, such that that angel acts as a simulated perspective that I can filter my own perspective through to get me out of my head, to get me out of my ego, to put me in touch with a way of seeing reality that I couldn't have seen before. So I think that's like a really good way of understanding what the creative use of the imagination is when it comes to inducing an altered state, interacting with imaginative contents in that altered state. It's a kind of like a problem-solving relationship which promotes uh, insight and perspective change. Awesome. That was perfect. And I think, I think going through that path of imagination is, is, is really useful because it, it demystifies a lot, of, a lot of how people view these experiences. Uh, and at the same time, it's very it's very intuitive uh, and especially especially intuitive because we've been we've been interacting with the world in the sense of how it's reflected in culture this way since forever and it's just only very recently that we kind of lost that way of 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 dealing with reality because um i think because of like the 
the emergence of the prioritization of rationality and science, uh, it kind of, I wouldn't say not necessarily directly, but indirectly just pushed imagination down. Uh, and then it's very confusing when then you have a mystical experience and then the whole thing turns upside down. But there's that that's actually, I would say, a more natural state that is now a bit... Uh, inhibited by the culture we live in, obviously not to the degree of a mystical state, but you know, uh, in a more natural cognition that you would find in in, in, a, in a tribal society, for example. Um, and, and I really like the way you put it. Um, now, the way I conceptualize this conversation would be to kind of lay this introduction of of cognitive science and of spirituality, wisdom, insight, and then kind of try to get a bit deeper into the mystical more esoteric uh, aspect of things uh but we won't have time for that and that, that takes a lot of time and conversation to unpack so if you're if you're up for it then maybe we'll save that for another conversation down the line when you have time and if you're interested um and so maybe let's just close it down uh with some more detail uh, on your book because i'm i'm really trying to I'm I'm trying my best to make everyone aware of uh, these types of uh, of conversations and and this type of looking at the world. And I think your book will be very helpful. Um, I think the I think Vareki's uh, Meaning Crisis was huge. I think it was a huge paradigm shift. But uh, but like providing someone with like a forty hour playlist. And like, watch this, and then you'll understand what I'm saying. That's not very appealing. So if it's like a 300-page book, I think that's a lot more digestible for people. And so I'm very excited to not only read the book, but to have a very actionable thing I can give to people so that they can dive more into these tops if, if they want to. So maybe just explore a bit more of the book. And also, I know that, uh, at least from my understanding, the crowdfunding page uh, is closed but there's still an option to buy it at your website, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that is correct. We did have a crowdfunding campaign for it. Um, went pretty well. Um, I ended up raising something like $7,000 for a book, which I'm pretty happy with. Um, and what some of that money is going to is, um, of course, I'm basically being a research assistant for John, so um, I'm making a bit of income off that. But uh, it's also a artistic a uh, pet project of mine at this point. I'm hiring a bunch of artists to create um, sacred mystical type uh, art to create a more palatable, enjoyable, immersive reading experience. You know, uh, if there's a there's a, an author, his name's Graham Harmon, and at the beginning of one of his books, he's like, look, there's a lot of books to read, and I've tried to make this book as pleasant and enjoyable as possible because, like, if I'm going to expect your time, you know, I really want you to be engaged, and I want you to have a good time. and I very much resonate with that. So I'm trying to use um, artistic methods of um, idea communication um, to create a more immersive and palatable experience, but also to um, engage in the imaginative creative problem solving that spiritual traditions have so often tried to engage in. Um, so yeah. That that aspect I'm really looking forward to. Actually, I, I have this mug which I got one of the the things printed. Oh, that's awesome! It's a bit it's a bit dark, but yeah, I just got those for myself because uh, you can also get posters of uh, some of the art that's going into this, which are available on my website, just like the 
the book is. Um, you can pre-order them. There's a, a version that has the full scope of art that's going into this uh, called the Illuminated Manuscript Edition. Uh, but then there's a more minimalist version as well that you can pre-order there as well, um, which just has some of the main pieces, but uh, it's just kind of black and white, um, really cut down to the meat. And yeah, so Verbeke's Meaning Crisis series is a bit of a monster. You know, it's huge. <laughs> it's not very accessible um, if you're not really deeply engaged. Um, so you're right, sending that to people is like not always the best thing. And when John appealed to me to start writing this book, he was very much trying to create a more accessible version of some of the information in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. Uh, so you are correct that it'll be more digestible and also that the point is precisely to make some of that work a bit more di digestible. Um, I'm doing the majority of the writing and I'm having a really good time doing it. Uh, the book is split into three sections. So uh, I've named them Heaven, Earth, and the Way. So Heaven addresses some of these strictly philosophical problems involved in um, defining enlightenment and defining mystical experiences, defining sacredness. That goes into, uh, for example, what is a worldview? What is the structure by which we make sense of reality? And what is its relationship to the environment around us? So we talk a bit about this ecological mind viewpoint, um, the negotiation of existence between early life forms and the environment, um, the co-creation of organism and environment. Um, and all of that implies that our minds, our ways of seeing reality um, are very, there's like, ethically important considerations in our worldviews, right? Such that the dominant worldview that has existed in our society and which has constructed the very streets and buildings that surround us, um, that worldview is not only inaccurate, but it's also maladaptive and it is an existential threat to itself. So that worldview is um, what I'm calling the clockwork world. It's a dead and empty cosmos based on purely mechanistic principles and inert matter. And in that reality, human beings don't fit. Nihilism is always near in that view of reality. Uh, it doesn't care about anything. There is no, um, there's no real life in that world. Consciousness is an illusion, right? And we were only like 50, 60 years out of a period where the dominant view in psychology was that consciousness is an illusion, right? The right. behaviorist schools. So that's what you get when you have a cosmic clock world um, trying to approach the mind. You just basically get rid of the mind and you consider everything empty, cold, lifeless. So instead, I'm, I'm putting that in dialogue with um, a older picture of the cosmos, which articulates the cosmos as a living being. And it uses organisms and metaphors as its primary, or did I say metaphors? Organisms and music as its primary metaphors which is something that's actually being redirected. So there are some like neuroscientists who are developing this cool view, um, which is called uh, connectome harmonics, which uses um, acoustic vibrational musical types of analyses to talk about uh, the propagation of brainwaves. And also those same patterns show up in animal coats, the patterns on them, and a, a number of other phenomena as well. Um, so I'm putting those two cosmos in dialogue and I'm talking about how enlightenment is sort of best situated within this living cosmos. That's the one that actually gives us an optimal grip on reality. It allows us to dialogue with reality in a way that more or less ensures our own social structures are not their own greatest existential threat. <laughs> um, and if you look at, for example, Christian ideas of enlightenment, um, this 
stable community sustained by cosmic wisdom is precisely what they're trying to get at. So right. a lot of that more metaphysical stuff is going in that first section. In section two, Earth, um, we're talking about this cognitive continuum, um, insight, flow, the mystical experience, breaking down the different kinds of mystical experience, um, you know, defining the unitive, the interactive relational, um, situating, awakening in those experiences as well, trying to lay out clearly where it happens, when, what the conditions are. Uh, we'll talk about the cognitive signs of optimal grip, development, those kinds of things. And then in the last section, it's uh, intended to be sort of a practical guideline. So based on sections one and two, we'll be like, okay, so we have a pretty good picture of enlightenment as an optimal grip on an environment, which has this relationship to the sacred at its center, because that's what allows us to consistently be in creative um, reformulation of our uh, frames of reference um, so that we can mitigate the influence of our biases, be in constant direct contact with reality. Uh, how do we get that? Um, so we lay out some ways in which you can engage in meditative practice, uh, and then also some recommendations on sort of sociocultural interventions, right? Rebecca likes to talk about this religion of no religion. Uh, I think that's a hugely important thing. We need to have some sort of space which has an effectively grounded picture of what spirituality is that can help people interface with spirituality. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about what that institution might look like as well in that section. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a, a pretty good overview. Um, I still have, I got like 10 minutes or so if you want to quickly touch on anything else, ask any questions about that. Huh. Uh, trying to kind of scroll through my notes and I, there's a lot, lot more that I wanted to get into, <clears throat> but I feel that any of the things that we didn't already cover, if we go into them, that will just lead into a rabbit hole and then it will certainly not be 10 minutes. Um, so maybe that's just a, a good way to, uh, to stop, especially with a overview that you gave of your book. Um, I really encourage people listening to pre-order the book, or even if you're not very comfortable uh, giving money uh, right off the bat, especially if you're new to those types of ideas, maybe I would recommend, uh, first of all, the, the lecture series that uh, me and Daniel have alluded to called the uh, awakening from the meaning crisis. So I'll drop that into the description if you if you listeners want to check it out. Uh, because that's a bit overwhelming because there's a lot of episodes. I think there's 40 plus and they're an hour each. So if that seems overwhelming, although you can always just watch the one or two, but even if that's overwhelming, I'll also post uh, some lectures by John Ravakey, which are, uh, they touch a lot of the, of the same topics, but they're a lot more condensed because they're they are constructed in a way that they're supposed to make sense from beginning to end. And the period from beginning to end is only like an hour or an hour and a half. Uh, so he tries to be a lot more uh, dense and, and straight to the point. Um, so those are resources that I encourage everyone to check out and see if that's something you're interested in. Uh, if you like, if you like philosophy, if you like mysticism, if you like um, cognitive science, uh, and if you like just, the idea of wisdom and living a better life, uh, then I think these, these conversations and these topics are of interest to you and the book will also be interesting. So definitely consider buying the book and, or at least check more material out. That's what I would recommend. I, I also will mention um, that I have a mailing list and 
you can sign up for that on my website. It's uh, dgreg.com. I'll give you a link for that. And something that I'm cooking up right now is an online course. Uh, the working title is The Ecological Mind. And I'm going to get Dr. Vagy to contribute to that, um, as well as um, some other people that I've, I've been talking to, but not enough to give names yet. So that I, I hope to be perhaps about 10 to 12 hours of content released on a weekly basis. Um, and if all goes well, I'll also be able to, um, I'm going to have like limited enrollment for that. It'll be pretty cheap um, and then free later. But at first, I'm going to actually work as a TA with that course. So I'll be holding seminars as well um, to be able to engage in dialogue with people who participate in the course. And the focus will be very much a lot of the stuff I've been talking about um, you know, the origins of mind, the origins of life, and what all that has to say about how to live a good life. Um, so that's of interest. Um, that should be something that'll be up and available in the next few months, and getting on my mailing list is a good way to uh, keep in touch with when that happens. Awesome. Okay. I'll make sure to drop um, your websites and also, do you have like a page directly for the, for the newsletter? If you just scroll to the bottom, uh, there's a like a, the, any page really, but uh, you'll see on the home page, there's a little bar for your email at the bottom and mm -hmm. it says subscribe. That's where you can do that. Oh, got it. Awesome. So everyone should definitely do that. I'm very excited for that course. I wasn't aware that you were working on it. Sounds great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a good place to stop. And uh, we covered a lot of grounds and I think mm -hmm. it's very interesting. So thank you so much for for coming and uh, it was very insightful in my opinion. And I think it's very useful for people, especially if they're new to this type of stuff. Great. Yeah, I hope so. That's um, my main motivation is to make this stuff applicable to people's lives. Cause what, what is it going to do if it's just all lofty um, philosophizing in the Academy, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, uh, let's maybe talk again, follow up on some of these more uh, ontological metaphysical issues. Right. I was very excited about that. It's a shame we didn't get time for it, but maybe in the future, that'd mm -hmm. be amazing. So, okay. Thank you very much and have a good day. See ya.